Thank you, Paul, for reading. Let's pray together as we begin. Heavenly Father, help us to take hold of the truth of your word, the hope of your gospel, and what it is you call us to now, so that we may leave here more fully living for you and sensing your love for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what do you think about when you think of hope? One definition is a feeling of expectation and desire for a particular thing to happen. Hope is something we all long for and need. The writer Fyodor Dostoevsky wrote that to live without hope is to cease to live. We're all driven by our need for hope. Well, we're not quite there yet, but we're coming towards the end of our series in 1 John which we've used to think through our church values here at St. Mary's. I'm sure by now you know what they are. They're nurturing biblical faith, showing Christ-like love, and offering gospel hope. And it's the last of those hope that we're thinking about today in this first section of chapter 5 of John's first letter. But slightly creeping into next week, we know the purpose of John's letter, because if you look down, you'll see... In verse 13, he says, I write these things to you, as he summarizes everything he said, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's his pastoral concern, his desire. And in that, we see the hope of the eternal coming through right there, driving John's words throughout his letter. Now, throughout our series, we've covered quite a bit of ground. But here we see John reminding us, of the essentials that he's referred to throughout his letter and also offering us gospel hope at an even deeper level. And that's our first point today, that gospel hope changes lives. So that's something you might want to write down. Gospel hope changes lives. And we see that there in verse 1. You'll see that he says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So the first thing that happens when someone puts their faith in gospel hope is that they're reborn, they're spiritually born. There's a sort of spiritual birth within. Now maybe you've heard of uh, the term born-again Christians. It's sometimes used in a slightly derogatory way to refer to Christians who are perhaps seen to be a bit overly keen about their faith. But that's really a, a misconception. Because Jesus is quite clear in the Gospels, that he only knows of one kind of Christian, and that's the one who's born again. In fact, we'll be singing about that very idea quite soon in the line of that famous Christmas carol, born to give them second birth. That's what that carol's speaking about there. And we read about Jesus' words uh, concerning this in John's Gospel, chapter 3. And he says there, that we must be born again if we're to enter his kingdom. See the words there on the screen from the earlier part of that chapter. You see, it's not a physical birth, but it's a spiritual birth. And it's essential to be born spiritually if we are to come to God in faith. So that gospel hope does just that. It brings a new birth. And we also see in verse 1 that gospel hope changes lives as John continues on. Because he says, look, everyone who loves the father loves his child as well. 
And that seems to make good sense, doesn't it? Because how can we say that we love someone if we don't love their child? No, it would undermine our claim to love someone if we said we didn't love their child or their their children. No, anyone who loves the father loves his child as well. So that gospel hope does that work. It makes us loving. Which is important, isn't it? Because we live in a world where there's tension. Tension throughout uh, families and relationships, in communities and workplaces, towns, regions, and even in between nations. We very much sense the fracturing of the world. Because at heart there's a lack of love. Now we can try and stir up within ourselves a love for each other. But what gospel hope does is it nurtures a different kind of love within us. It's a love for God's people that flows from an understanding that just as we have been, so they have been born spiritually and are therefore part of God's family. And therefore, because we're now part of this new family, we love everyone else within the family. That's how it works. We don't just vertically love our father, but we love our father's children as well. It's not the world that we all want, a world where there's love between people. The problem is we try and stir it up within ourselves. And what we need to do is see how it's through God that we come into a family where he loves us or we love each other. I wonder today, if looking out, you think of others here today who follow Jesus as your father's children, of which you're together part of the same family. We often just think of ourselves individually. No, we're, we're part of God's family. We're his children. And John furthers this point in verse 2. You'll see he explains there that love for God is expressed in obedience to his commands. And he uses this interesting phrase, his commands are not burdensome. Now it's important to get what John's saying here. He's not saying that God's commands can feel like a burden, but because they're good and right, just persevere through and obey them anyway. No, John says that God's commands are not burdensome. Now there are many things in life that are burdensome, aren't there? Things that weigh us down. Could be long commutes, slow moving queues, delayed trains, monotonous work. But at a deeper level, we all carry different burdens within, don't we? Whether physical burdens through illness, emotional burdens from the past that we just can't get rid of, they stay with us. Much of life can feel burdensome but not God's commands well if they're not burdensome then surely they must be a good thing they must be desirable and yet many would say surely that that's the opposite of of the life we want isn't it that's the opposite of how I become my best self I mean, in, in books, films, and the media in general, Christians are often portrayed as a, a bit a geeky or uptight, moralistic and boring people who don't have the fun or the joy. That, that's, that's out there, that's elsewhere. But here John is saying, no, no. Following God is not burdensome. 
It's not burdensome. It's good. It's desirable. In fact, John qualifies why that's the case in verse 4. You'll see that he explains that God's commands are not a burden. For everyone who is born of God overcomes the world. Well, we'll come to that theme in a minute. But before we do, it's important to just get what John's saying here. Because I think what he's saying is that when we come to faith in Christ, when we're spiritually born, we actually change within. Like a physical birth, where the evidence of it is an actual baby, with spiritual birth, the evidence of it are the things that John has been talking about through his letter. We've seen that, haven't we? Belief in Jesus Christ. Love for God's people. Obedience to God's commands. And he picks up these key themes here where he he talks about how those who have been born of God will evidence that reality through their love for each other and their following of God's commands. Christian faith isn't just something that we sort of assent to intellectually. It's It's not a habit that we do on Sunday mornings. No, it's a life. And John shows how we can be sure that we are born of God. However, before we're born spiritually, God's commands, the Bible, what his word says about how we should live, it does feel like a burden. And that's because deep within our hearts don't want to follow them. Outside of, of Christ, we perhaps look at God's word as so often culture doesn't says, oh, we see the value here. Yeah, see the moral value here. But the problem is we don't want to do those things. We know we should, but we don't want to. But actually, when we come to Jesus, we're given a new heart. In fact, the Bible says that God writes his law upon our hearts. So what happens is that we, we come in faith. We're born spiritually. And we discover that within, now we, we, we do want to begin living for God. We do want to follow him. We find growing within us is a longing to love God's people and to follow his commands. And so God's commands then no longer feel like a burden because we actually sense within us a desire to do them. We then don't just know what's right. We want to do what's right before God. Now look, that doesn't mean we won't slip up from time to time, but overall, we will find that God's commands become our delight. We'll start wanting to live in a way that pleases him and indeed can begin to do so. Gospel hope changes lives because it changes hearts. And so where you've maybe felt hopelessly unable to live in a way that you think is right, to live for God, as you come to him and you give your life to him, you'll begin to sense within that desire to live in a way that pleases him, to follow his commands. There is hope that We can live lives that please God. You see, those who come to God and are born again will find that following God's commands becomes part of who they are. It will flow from your identity as one of God's children, having been adopted into his family. As someone's written, for the Christian, the commands of God are no more of a burden than wings are to a bird. 
Just as a bird expresses itself in flight, so God's children show forth their identity as God's people by following his commands. The problem is, of course, that so often we listen to the lies of the world and are tempted to believe that obeying God's commands is not as satisfying or as fun or as fulfilling as disobeying them. We think we'll get satisfaction from living according to our sinful natures, the desires of the flesh that John speaks about earlier in his letter. We think as we indulge those desires in the world that that's what's going to give us the good life. But that's not the case. However, if we do believe that, if we've drunk that in deep, God's commands will be burdensome. If we believe that message of the world, that what will give us the most joy and satisfaction is to just do what we want, do what we want with our our time, our our money, our bodies, our, our eyes, relationships, whatever it may be, then we will find God's commands to be a burden. And yet those who've done so testify time and time again that that's just like drinking salt water. It makes us only want more of the same. It never satisfies. But you see, faith sees that Jesus is better. Better than all that. Better than what the world can offer. And where the world can enslave us and burden us by our own sinful desires. Jesus is the gentle master whose yoke is easy and burden light. A new affection expels the old ones and we want to live for him. In fact, as Jesus said in his summary of God's law, we're to love God and love his people. So John here offers us real hope that we can indeed begin to live for God and love his fellow children. Because he shows us that God's commands are not burdensome, but in them is life. Gospel hope changes lives. But at a deeper level even, John offers us here gospel hope that's founded upon our faith. That is, upon Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we see that declares in verse 4, everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. So moving on, our second point then is that gospel hope is victorious. Now, victory by definition involves defeating an enemy or an opponent in battle. Think of how England recently defeated Pakistan in the T20 Cricket World Cup. Or think of how England won the forthcoming World Football Cup. Victory requires an opponent to be defeated. But what then is the opponent John writes of here in verse 4 then? Well, the 18th century pastor and theologian Jonathan Edwards wrestled with this text. And his conclusion was that our faith and love for God enable us to overcome the difficulties that attend keeping God's commands. This shows that love is the main thing in faith and the life and the power of it produce great effects to overcome. So on that basis, the opponent over whom Christians are victorious then 
are the lies of the world's temptations around and about us, the spiritual forces within and without that tell us to believe those lies, to tell us to stop loving God and others and to go the way of the world. As the uh, writer and theologian John Piper has said, the world here could then be defined as anything that makes the commandments of God a burden. And part of the victory of the Christian life is that the world is exposed as unsatisfying. You see, we see there at the end of verse 4, John says, this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. As we come to faith and we see the goodness and the truth of God's way and God's word, we can say no to the world because we've seen something better. In that sense, we overcome. We overcome the deception of the world as it holds out life that is not truly life. But beyond even that, God's children have the hope in sharing in a victory that has been won for us by Christ. So far from just spectating, Jesus' victory parade is one that we'll all be part of. So therefore we'll finally overcome the world in the sense that there's no hostile power in the world that can stand against our conquering King Jesus. His victory over sin and death and Satan becomes a victory which we share in as we put our faith in him. So in this life as we battle sin and and one day even face death itself... Those who have faith in Christ shall overcome the world by declaring that Jesus is Lord of all and Lord of their lives. As John says in verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. You see, in Jesus we have a gospel hope that is victorious. And finally... The gospel hope is true. This brings us to the uh, second section here from verse 6 on. If you look down, there is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement What's going on here? Now we need to remember that John is writing into a first century setting where there were people who were saying that Jesus wasn't fully divine. And that when Jesus started his ministry, it was only then that the divine spirit came upon him. But it then then left him before the cross. And that was because, of course, those people thought that God couldn't be put on a cross and die. So these People, these false teachers, were saying that Jesus was sort of divinely enabled between his baptism and his death. But he wasn't eternally the Son of God. So you can see, therefore, why John is writing about these three witnesses here. There's firstly the witness of the water which he refers to. That's touching on Christ's baptism by which he came at the start of his ministry. He came by water. And as he was baptized by John the Baptist, a different John, in the River Jordan. 
We read in the Gospels that a voice spoke from heaven saying, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So John here wants to affirm that the Jesus that was baptized was already the son of God. It didn't happen at his baptism. He already was. But John moves on. Because Jesus came not only by the waters of baptism, but also by the blood of the crucifixion. And by that, John means that the Jesus who died on the cross was equally and eternally the Christ, the Son of God. That's how we know it's really true. But what happened on the cross was powerful and effective to save us from our sin. If he was just a man, how could we then be made right with God? If Jesus was just a man, how could he take our sin away? See, John continues on, though, because the water and the blood are confirmed by this third great witness of the Spirit. And the Spirit is the truth. He taught the apostles. He inspired the writing of the scriptures. He used the preaching of the gospel to bring you and I to faith if you're following Christ this morning. So John explains that these three witnesses, they prove the truth about Jesus. Together they agree that Jesus is Christ, the Christ sent from God. And this, as verse 9 says, is the testimony of God, which he has given about his son. This is God's testimony. So the challenge to us today then is in verse 10. For whoever believes in the son accepts this testimony. But whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony that God has given about his son. So quite simply, will we believe God's own testimony? Will we believe his gospel? Or do we think God's a liar? You see, the gospel really is true because finally, you see, in the end, As verse 9 says, although we accept human testimony, God's testimony is greater. The gospel, the truth of it, comes from and belongs to God. The gospel is God's great testimony of truth to his world. So when we feel that faith is weak, we can take heart and have hope that the gospel is true. The water, the blood... The Spirit testify. And you see, the strength of our faith is not so much about us and our wavering, but it's about the object of our faith. It's not fundamentally about the strength of our belief, but rather about whom we believe in. Who or what do you believe in this morning? Who or what is your life founded upon? You see, when we look at Jesus and we see how these three witnesses, the water and the blood and the spirit, testify to the truth that he is indeed God's son, sent to be the saviour of the world. We can then know the gospel is true. And therefore, verse 12 is true, that whoever has the son has life. But whoever does not have the son does not have life. So in that same verse, there's great encouragement, but a gentle warning. John asks us today, do we 
have life? Do we have the Son? So powerful words from John today as he draws these great themes together under this banner of victory. We've seen that gospel hope changes lives. Those who come in faith to God are reborn and given a new heart to love God's fellow children and delight in his commands. We've seen that gospel hope is victorious. Our faith tells us a better story than the world's one. It gives us the truth in place of a lie. And it joins us to Christ in a glorious shared victory. And lastly, we've seen that gospel hope is true. So we can take heart, trust and follow. Because our faith is more about Christ than it is about us. Amen.